Welcome to Conservation Conversation with me, Kaz. Bloodlines exposes the exploitation of lions used for interactive activities with captive wildlife in tourism, including cub petting, walking with lions, and voluntourism. These unethical and insidious practices form part of the life cycle of a lion in the commercial captive predator breeding industry in South Africa. We speak with Dr. Louise Duval, Director and Campaign Manager of Blood Lions, and discuss the issue of animal welfare throughout the life cycle of a captive bred lion. Welcome, Dr. Louise Duval, Director and Campaign Manager of Blood Lions. Thank you. Thank you, Carson. Thank you for having us. We're very excited to have an opportunity to chat with you about this whole issue of interacting with wildlife, more specifically with, with, with lions. And I'm looking forward to you sharing your insights and the things that, that you have uncovered as far as the, the lion cub petting and uh, canned lion hunting trades are concerned. So can we start off with this interaction of humans cuddling and kissing and petting baby lions? <laughs> Yes, it's um, it's one of those things I think, um, and and when you see a lion cub, or whether it's a lion cub or a cheetah cub or a tiger cub, they're incredibly adorable. They're so cute, um, so it's it's understandable in a way that people want to get as close as possible, um, and you can't really get any closer than um, actually cuddling and petting and bottle feeding these animals and and that is sort of the human emotion that this whole industry is is kind of based on that that ultimate desire to be that close to these very iconic big cats um, and I think there is something special there's quite a special relationship between us humans and big cats um, and so I think that is ultimately what, what they are looking for, that very strong emotion of people. Um, and then couple that with the sort of the fraudulent messages that they're using, the marketing messages that these cops are being orphans or they're rejected by the mother. That adds to that emotion. And, and especially, and I don't want to um, sound sexist, but especially the sort of younger females there, I think their maternal instinct comes out. And when we look at the volunteering, um, it is predominantly that sort of youngish, 18 to 30, 35 year old white females um, who will want to come and volunteer and, and look after these animals. Um, so yeah, it is it is really building and playing on our human emotions. Yes, a little bit of a nefarious way of going about things. But Louise, um, the you said the the misinformation that these animals or these lion cubs have been rejected or are orphaned where do they actually come from well that uh, is a very simple answer and they're being bred in captivity um we have approximately 
between 300 and 350. The exact number is not known, but we have definitely been able to identify about 350 captive facilities, many of whom do breeds in captivity, um, and many of those who are open to the public as well. So we've got this very well-developed um, commercial breeding industry in South Africa that breed these big cats. And when I'm talking about big cats, and often we sort of use lions, and lions are the main species, but um, it's not just lions that we breed in captivity. When we look our, uh, into our indigenous species, it's, it's lions, it's cheetahs, it's caracals, um, it's leopards, it's servals, basically all the indigenous um, big cats. Um, then we um, breed uh, non-indigenous or, or exotic species like tiger, um, puma, uh, jaguars, and then we even crossbreed. We crossbreed between tigers and lions and create these monstrosities that are generally being referred to as ligers. So it's a very uh, extensive, well-established commercial industry that breed these animals in captivity. Yeah, yeah. Um which is quite disheartening to, to understand. And, and obviously from a biological perspective, when the female lion's cub has been removed, that obviously then prompts her back into estrus. And so the whole process is repeated over and over, which of course is not a particularly healthy for the, the female lion because in, in the wild, they would only be giving birth to new cubs sort of every two, two years or so, if I understand. That is absolutely correct. Um, yes, and and that uh, that helps. So, in when we compare captivity and a wild situation, you're absolutely correct. A mother will have a litter of cubs approximately every couple of years. That is when her cubs are completely independent and matured, um, and she won't actually go into heat again until that point in time. Um, when you actually take the cups away, then her hormones um, sort of rebalance and she, as you say, she becomes, uh, she goes back into heat much more quickly. And so um, in theory, uh, you could have four to five litters in the same period that a wild lioness would have one litter. Um, so yeah, the, the, the number of cubs these females can produce and do produce is huge. And that puts an enormous both physical and mental psychological stress onto them as well. Because we should not forget that we're talking about sentient beings. These animals, they do feel pain, both physical and emotional pain and stress. Um, so for a mother to have her cups removed forcibly every time over and over and over again is just a huge psychological strain and drain on that specific you know that individual animal plus the the physical as well and we know for example from 
um, a lioness that was rescued from the uh, commercial breeding industry and who is now living out her life in one of the few Barra sanctuaries. We know that she has quite a lot of internal issues as a result of that repeated pregnancies. I mean, what you're describing, Louise, is sounds like it's almost on a on an industrial scale, which is, you know, again, and I'd like to now move on to the direction of whether there's any sort of conservation value in mm. in having these line farms in place and and what if any benefit to biodiversity they present. Yeah, I, and I think that is the guise under which this industry has been able to to exist and um, mushroom for a, a very long time. Is is this whole over? It's it's um, aiding, it's benefiting the conservation of lions in wilds. Um, the count hunting, um, it does, um, you know, reduce the stress and strain on wild lion hunting. And there's no evidence of those things. There's no evidence that any funds that are generated through the industry actually end up um, supporting conservation of lions in the wild. There's absolutely no evidence of, of that happening. Um, when we're looking at uh, reintroductions, because very often um, these facilities will actually tell visitors and volunteers, no, these animals will ultimately be released back into the wild. Again, there is no evidence. And the evidence is there that it's actually not possible. You know, when we look at the line breeding industry, we know there's a lot of inbreeding. The genetics of those captive bred lions is inferior compared to wild lions. So lion ecologists go, no, we do not want those inferior genes being mixed and released into the wilds. Um, those animals being captive bred they're physically not as strong as wild lions. They very often haven't experienced a social structure, a pride structure, because very often they live in same age groups in captivity. They've never hunted for themselves. Um, and when we actually look at wild lions, there's no need to breed these animals in captivity because they breed perfectly fine in the wilds. Um, so there is no need even to, to breed those animals uh, in captivity. And on top of that, we know that there um, is a lot of uh, zoonotic diseases that exist. Um, and yes, there are zoonotic diseases that exist in the wild as well, but the chance that we actually bring diseases into the wild um, are very real as well. Um, and then I think the last point is, um, do we have enough space? If we can really reintroduce these lions, is there enough safe habitat for those lions to be introduced into? Um, the answer to that is no, we don't. There isn't enough habitat space. Um, yes, if we would look on an African basis, then maybe in the whole of Africa, there might be space to do that. But the actual capital 
that is needed for those kind of long distance ring predictions is, is just not there either. So yeah, it's so easy to completely unravel that myth and say, it's just, you know, the evidence is not there. Um, the lions are very unlikely to survive into the wild and there's no need to captive breed lions um, because they're very capable of breeding in the wilds. <laughs> yeah, all, all by themselves and, and without interference from, from us humans, right? I like this the, the, the point that you mentioned about whether there would be sufficient space for, for these animals if there was evidence that reintroduction to the wild was was actually possible. I have a piece of information from the IUCN red data list that states the, the greatest threats to wild lions are a lack of safe and suitable space and obviously conflict with humans and the captive breeding doesn't address this issue. No. So it just reiterates all the, the little nuanced points that, that you've just mentioned. And I think on top of that, I think also in terms of the human-wildlife conflict situation, we could actually exacerbate that because we're now starting, if that would be the case, that we are going to be introducing captive bred lions who are actually habituated right from the get-go to humans, and we're reintroducing those animals into the wilds. So we're releasing animals that have lost their natural fear for humans into the wilds. So that would be a real chance um, to exacerbate the whole human wildlife conflict situation as well. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. I mean, we, we debunking myths here left, right and center, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I'm very happy about. All right. We've, we've touched on, on the, the, the cub petting, but Louise, you know, if you feed something enough, um, it's going to grow and it's going to grow into a size where it's no longer cute and cuddly. What is the next step in the future for these little cubs once they are, are now too big to, to be in a petting environment? What happens next? Some, uh, not many of them, but some will go into walking with lions kind of industry um, where they're used um, for people to go literally on a lion walk. Um, and otherwise they will go back to the breeding facility or another facility that has enough space where they can sort of grow a bit long further until they're big enough to maybe be shot in a cant hunt or being uh, exported um, live um, to a variety of countries around the world. Um, they might even be killed for their bones. Um, although we don't have a um, export quota at the moment for lion skeletons, um, lions are still being killed for their skeletons and the skeletons are being stockpiled. So that still happens as well. Or the females become breeding machines themselves and start to become part of this, that complete vicious circle. Yes. Um, so yeah, their, their future is, is pretty bleak. Yes. Yeah, you mentioned about the, the 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 lion bone quota. I know there isn't one at the moment, but when there was one, 
I think it was, yeah, since 2008, um, it's been revealed that 6,000 lion carcasses or plus minus 70 tons of lion parts have been exported to Southeast Asia for use in Asian traditional medicine practices. And I think it was uncovered that this was perceived as being a byproduct but then it's also since been discovered in 2017 by the EMS Foundation and Banned Animal Training that 91% of those body parts included skulls. Please tell me mm. why the skulls being part of those 70 tons is an alarming indicator. Basically, if the skull is part of the whole skeleton, so i.e. the skeleton is being exported whole it means that the lion has not been shot or killed in a trophy hunt because a trophy hunter generally would want to take the head um, that includes the skull as the trophy back home so the taxidermist would then create a beautiful lion's head that they can put on the wall so it means that those animals were killed purposely for that industry um, and yes, the bones are being used for traditional Chinese medicine, but we should also not forget that every other body part is being used as well. So teeth and claws, for example, are being manufactured into quite expensive jewellery. Um, quite often the skins are being used for rugs. Um, so every part of the body is being used and we are getting more and more um, information now as well that even the meat is being used. Um, so yeah, it's, it's virtually every single body part that plays a role. Um, but we also believe that there are processing plants in South Africa that actually starts boiling down these skeletons into um, very condensed forms. Um, and they're generally being referred to as, as lime cakes. And then there's sort of a powdery form, very compacted powdery form that then is exported. And of course, that, that product you can't recognize that anymore as a lion product there. So how is that being exported? Is that being exported in between other things illegally? Um, we don't actually know. Um, so yeah, we, there's still a lot of information that we need to sort of uncover. Um, but a lot of these animals are being bred specifically for that trade. And let's not forget that a lion that is hunted in a count hunt needs to at least physically look attractive. A lion that's been bred specifically to be slaughtered for their bones doesn't matter what they look like because they're only interested in the bones. Yeah. So from a welfare perspective, that industry is, is, is a massive concern and very problematic. And there are welfare concerns all through the life cycle of these lions as well. Um, the NSPCA does regular inspections at these um, at various facilities and they're finding all sorts of welfare issues. Uh, relating to this industry 
Um, and just from the start, you know, when you actually remove a lime cup from the mother, these cups are fed on a milk replacer. Quite often, a milk replacer like Aspilac, which is actually developed for canines. And that means that there are certain amino acids missing certain vitamins and minerals, amino acids missing from that specific milk replacer. So that means right from the get-go, you do not give those animals a fair chance in life um, because as a result, their immune systems become compromised. And as soon as their immune systems are compromised, they are more susceptible to all sorts of diseases. Yes. Yeah, and I think once uh, once they've been weaned off this um, ineffectual milk replacement, um, even then, there's other things that are that they need to take in what would normally be in their their natural diet. That if they don't receive, they get complications with eyesight. I think is something that I that I read. Um, I think there's complications with virtually everything because yeah. very often they are fed on on chicken. Yes. Um, so those chickens very often come from the intensive chicken farming where, you know, a whole boiler house dies for whatever reason. Um, so it's a very um, limited um, intake of, um, of meat and it's all white meats. If we think about what a lion eats in in the wilds, they will take, you know, an impala or whatever it is down, and they they eat all the parts, and it's red meat, and it's the intestines, and so they sort of buy all the various elements of the body that they eat, they get all their their vitamins, their minerals, their calcium, their everything. Um, whereas, yeah, um, a chicken is not really enough to to feed a lion on. Maybe yes, in terms of calorie intake, it can be sufficient, but not in terms of the nutritional value that that such an animal, such a, a, a predator needs. Um, so yeah, that can lead to all sorts of um, a whole range of of diseases, um, bone deformities. Um, I'm sure it can um, have impact on their eyesight. Um, yeah, just everything and anything under the sun. But um, bone deformities can actually start from a very early age. Um, I've actually seen a very young cub of maybe six six weeks in a petting facility and it had very sort of those o-shaped little legs mm. and i actually showed that to one of our well-known wildlife vets here in south africa dr peter goldwell and he said yes definitely bone deformity so that's at an age of about six weeks oh. um, because of the lack of nutritional value that these animals yeah. receive yeah and I mean, besides the the um, lack of nutrition, nutritious food being fed to them, they're also when they're not being hugged and petted for eight to ten hours, they then confined all together in in pretty small enclosures. 
and and continuing with the the welfare of these animals there was horrific footage that was uncovered in 2016 of a lion farm in Limpopo but more recently in 2019 there's a lion farmer in the in the northwest province of South Africa mm. where the national council of the of SPCA went in there and the the images that they shared of what they found there were absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, uh, one of the, the the stats was 27 lion cubs that were suffering from mange and malnutrition. Um, there's mention of a, a caracal that was so obese it couldn't even groom itself. I mean, all of these yeah. things these things speak to the to the fact that there is absolutely no proper care being taken of the animals in these facilities no and and diseases like mange yes. um they if you have enough lions all living close together and one has mange within no time all of them have mange and these lions for example they their mange was so bad that they hardly had any fur left so it must have been left untreated for a considerable length of time for mange to become that bad. Um, so these animals must have been in a lot of pain and discomfort um, because it's it's very uncomfortable. They would be in pain, itching, um, sores that become infected. Um, if you have no fur, then they would probably been suffering from um, sunburn, um, you know, all the sort of secondary uh, issues related to that. Um, and yes, it's all about um, the bottom line, not wanting to bring in a veterinarian who can treat those animals properly, um, because that is too expensive and would take money from their bottom line. And that's what it ultimately boils down to is, is, is money. And there are no proper norms and standards for welfare of these captive wild animals um, in South Africa, not in terms of the keeping and the breeding and not even in terms of the slaughter. You know, we have norms and standards for keeping off of, of cows and pigs and, and chickens and all your domestic animals and how to slaughter them and what's right and what's not right and, and how, you know, and how their welfare at least should be taken into consideration. There's none of those existing for um, the captive breeding and keeping of wild animals in South Africa. Yeah, that's, it sounds like there's a change as far as this part of our business sector and tourism sector needs to happen sooner rather than later. But Louise, I'm curious if the public keeps being given the information of, of these farms existing, they are given harsh imagery of the conditions under which these animals mm. are left to survive. Why then do, do you think they continue to be supported? I think there is still an enormous amount of lack of knowledge. Uh, I think there's still a lot of people out there who are ignorant on what this industry is really about. 
Um, so I think, you know, the likes of us, blood, Bloodlines and other NGOs in this space, we still have a, a lot of ground to cover. And I think that is very often the problem with NGOs like ourselves is how to reach all these people um, and how to reach them to inform people and to educate them. Um, but I think on the other side, we also have to admit that this human desire, wanting to be this close, um, and then we are willing to sort of turn a blind eye in many ways. Um, you know, and uh, when you go to a facility where you can actually cup a line, uh, pet a line cup, um, that's instant gratification. Um, whereas you go on a safari and you may or you may not see a lion. Um, you know, to me, that is the excitement of going on safari, never knowing what you're going to see and actually being grateful what nature is willing to show you. Um, but I think we live in a society where we want that instant gratification with everything we do and an entitlement as well. No, I want to see this. I have a right to see a lion for real. Um, and be as close as I can be to that animal. It's that entitlement as well that we humans believe we have, and we put our own interest well ahead of the interests um, of the animals involved. Um, and I think that is something that we have to start to admit as, as a human race um, to do something about, because is it really necessary, you know? Do we have that right to see everything for real? Um, or are there also other ways that we can, because very often, you know, the, the, the excuse that is also used by a lot of these facilities that are open to the public are the educational value that they, create and provide to the public and um, that is a big question mark as well what is the educational value and if there is any are there other ways in which we can achieve that other ways that do not um, ultimately put the animal in a situation where its welfare is being compromised um, and I think technology are, is giving us those opportunities these days. And we have to start looking outside of the box as, as um, you know, educational providers. We have to start looking outside of the box in terms of other ways of providing people with the information that they need um, to inspire um, a love for species, a love for conservation, a willingness to to be involved in that space in a in a in a positive way, um, rather than this instant gratification and um, the obsession with 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 taking selfies and wanting to put you know these photos onto social media. Um, so yeah, I think we have to take a pretty hard look at ourselves as well. I agree. As, as a, I agree. I agree. And I, I, I like your reference to, to modern technologies and thinking outside of the box and, and creating the awareness of, of what these facilities 
really are about and exposing it. And, you know, if, if it can't be a self-regulated upstanding sector, then maybe the lack of money coming from visitors and, and those encounters they're hoping for is going to be, you know, sort of start, start a chain. But I think, um, Louise, I'm sure you'll agree that if there aren't those interacting facilities, there are still going to be these other industries from line breeding that will continue and go against the, the better welfare of, of, the, of the species. And so I think more and definitive action needs to be taken by the South African government. As you pointed out, there's no regulations for how we work with these animals whereas they are for other domesticated species. So I think the, the call for action in terms of putting regulations in place is becoming more and more critical. Although, yes, I, I totally agree. Um, other parts of the industry will still continue if we would be able to, to curb the sort of the, the tourism interaction side and the volunteering side. But we will take a very important part of the revenue out of that whole chain because it is a value chain that we have created um, and if we take that important part away it makes it less attractive from an economical point of view to be part of this space um, so yeah it may it will help um, but I fully agree that we need uh, uh, we need to to take a much more um, definitive action because you know once that the, the industry will come up with other ways of raising money from these animals um, so yeah I think the closure is for us is the only way forward yeah. the full closure of the industry yeah I think there's a lot of hard work ahead, not just for for NGOs like yourself, but other people that are that are very keen to to see this industry shut down. But I think it's going to be a very long and arduous process. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, no. But on that note, Louise, I want to say to you, thank you very very much for taking the time to highlight these issues of a what I believe an an iconic African species. And hailing from the continent, it's something that I would see rather running around in the bush, roaring its head off than in a cage, dying from all kinds of other diseases. So thank you very much. I could agree more. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the work being done by Bloodlines, please see their link in the description. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We hope you'll join us in our next conservation conversation. Just a quick shout out to the original music shop, also known as Tom's, for assisting us with our podcasting equipment. You guys are awesome. <laughs>